Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode. So, in in this interview, we interviewed our friend Katerina, who is studying to be a clinical psychologist and has years more of studying and degrees to earn in order to get the certification that she needs to practice in her field. And um, this this episode started off by us talking to her about her interest in crypto, and, and hint hint nudge nudge. It was. Um, her foresight into making sure she made some investments early enough so that she could um, she could take care of the debt that she needs to take on to earn all of these these certifications and degrees. So it was a very um, very interesting conversation, not only because of the perspective that she brought on crypto, but also because she has traveled in Central America in the past and she brought some um, some thoughts that Keegan and I were obviously not aware of because we don't have that experience. Um, and she, <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll let you listen to it because I can't summarize it in this introduction. I just won't do it justice. So she, she brought a lot of value to our preconception of, yeah, Bitcoin in El Salvador, etc. And, and after that, we also talked a little bit, a little bit about the political leanings of Bitcoin. So all in all, it was a fantastic conversation. Lots of new perspectives were brought to light, which Keegan and I personally love because sometimes we feel like we're in a bubble, only talking about the things that we're interested in. So you will take away a new and different perspective from this interview and if you also have lots of studying to do in the future then hopefully this will prove this interview with Kat, Katarina will provide you with uh, some inspiration to to take some action perhaps and again for that you can always reach out to us ready to go full crypto you can also reach out to Kat to talk to her about her opinions her experience and just I guess anything in general because she's She's a fantastic person. She would love to talk to you. So that's that. All right. Uh, one last thing I will say, because we haven't said it in a while. If you're enjoying our podcast, please tell other people about it. And if you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, then leave us a review and a rating so that uh, artificial intelligence and algorithms can bring our podcast up and more people can find it. That would really help us grow and um, keep us going in making this producing this podcast and super helpful to us so uh thank you for doing that also thank you for listening and continuing to be um a supporter of our show simply by giving us your attention all right let's start the episode The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Margakshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. Katarina DeKeos. Hi. It's so exciting to have you on our podcast. I'm excited. Awesome. Well, I want to start off by talking about your financial literacy journey. Okay. So let's go back to, I guess, the first instance of when you decided that, okay, I got to step up my finance game. Um, so I've been in school, as you know, for a long time, I'm kind of a forever student. And so I think that's probably, I think not making an income is probably the motivation that I had to get more financially literate so that I wouldn't go just totally and completely broke. Um, 
So yeah, I made it. 2020 was just kind of a shit show for everyone. Can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it was kind of a shit show for everyone, um, including me for various reasons. And so as like, I was not financially, well, I wasn't as financially responsible as I would have liked to be. And so coming into 2021, I was, uh, I made it a new year's resolution to just have, yeah, increase my financial literacy, get more educated about how to manage the small amount of money I, I had and yeah, how to kind of make sure that I was doing even a little something for my future self. Right on. We know how long you have to study to get the degree that you want, but why don't you tell our audience what you are studying to become? Okay. Um, I am studying to become a clinical psychologist. Um, so I've just finished a master's degree and congratulations. I, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. You just defended your thesis last month. Yes. Um, and now I have some more applications to apply for a clinical psychology PhD program, which is going to be probably another six years if I get in this time. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a long haul and I'm in for it. Like I'm definitely, I was just saying earlier to you guys, I'm, I'm definitely in the right field. I know that this is what I want to be doing. Um, so I'm fulfilled by it, but it's not a, it's not a lucrative, uh, journey while you're in school. Once you're out of school, it's great. Like I'll be making hopefully very good money. Um, but when you're in school, the program itself is so intensive that there's no option generally to like have a job to offset your kind of costs and stuff like that. Your, your being a student is pretty much your job. So. Right on. So it was a 2021 resolution to do something with your money. And when did you think of crypto as an option to fulfill that goal we're laughing because <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm guilty there yeah i've been talking about crypto to cat for cat is short for katarina uh for like five years now so yeah five years like since for 2021 or since university it's probably since university since yeah, keegan like originally got into crypto and i think it was because i, I think maybe my like initial kind of buy-in because obviously you've been talking about this for a long time to me and I haven't really like, you know, picked it up. But I think maybe because you were helping my parents navigate a bit of a crypto journey at that time. So I was like, hmm, you know, like I could do something here, crypto.com, the card, like there was a lot of, I think crypto, when you first began to talk to me about it, like five years ago, it was obscure, obviously, yeah. and the infrastructure wasn't there. And as a lay person, I'll call myself, it wasn't going to be super accessible for me. But now with um, exchanges that are pretty much like it's just like online banking. And so, you know, I already have the kind of skill set to online bank. So it was uh, like less of a barrier to entry, I guess. That's wicked, actually. And I a very easy transition, too. Yeah. I haven't had anyone articulate that quite that way, actually, like the skills being transferable from from online banking to <laughs> banking with with a crypto exchange. Yeah, I guess online or banks have done something to promote. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, exchanges, exchanges are smart in the way that they are setting themselves up. Similar to the the kind of user experience of online banking. And so it's yeah, it's much more accessible for, again, like lay people. 
um, or people that just want to kind of dabble. Yeah. What I found most fascinating, though, was that once you were in it, we were talking about it at the gym, for example, or we'd talk when we went out and, you know, that one annoying friend who knows all about crypto, <coughs> Keegan, who had been that friend for you. I'm happy to be that friend, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but, you know, taking the annoying part out of it, you could join the conversation and you knew what was happening, which was amazing because it was like one more topic of conversation that we had in common to talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't really feel like I know what's going on, especially like t when talking to you guys, obviously you guys are like, have your finger on the pulse, so to speak. And so my level of knowledge is not anywhere near your level of knowledge or like, you know, keeping up with things in terms of news and like advancements and updates and what's going on. Um, but I do, I find the whole environment very interesting. Um, I mean, the gains were great the initial gains were great <laughs> the losses were hard to take and not not even because i think i very much integrated from you initially like you've made it really clear like put this in leave it in for a long time like don't expect mm. it to yeah be the thing that makes you rich overnight which you know if i was like again had my finger on the pulse and was mm, keeping up with everything that was going on like i could excuse me, I could have sold when it was, you know, when I had the, the best gains and I could have gotten like, not rich, rich, but like, you know, made some significant uh, gains, like not overnight, but in a pretty short amount of time. But yeah, I am seeing it more as a long-term investment and I'm, I'm interested in the philosophy of it. Yeah. Right. Awesome. That's in a nutshell, our, our journey, like come for the gains, stay for the philosophy. Um, that's not mine that's yours that's mine, mine is really interesting i actually don't even know what it is uh i love to think about it but yeah definitely yours where you came for the gains and state and philosophy and it helped you pay off your student debt too which is sort of a similar journey or path that you're on with respect to um not wanting to go broke not wanting to go <laughs> broke and having having well enough of a foresight to know that okay if i don't want to wait and rely on getting a job after i've get all of my degrees um that i need to make some good decisions right now yeah so good on you for that cat <laughs> i'm trying trying my best <laughs> right on so i want to know about what your thoughts were on bitcoin specifically when you signed up on an exchange so Okay. Um, do you have more to that question? No. Well, I, I want to know more about what your thoughts were on Bitcoin, because usually when we talk to people and introduce them to crypto, when they sign up, they see every other cryptocurrency that's out there, or at least the first five in their mobile view. And I've oftentimes received messages like, oh, what about Ethereum? What about Litecoin? What, that was a lot of a while ago. What about this? And what about that? And uh, that's not something that I experienced with you. I don't think Keegan experienced I, I that. Really like, we either, didn't bro. collectively experience that from you. So I, I want to know what your thoughts were when you signed up. This might not be a very interesting answer. I don't have, I didn't, I don't think I had a lot of thoughts about it. Um, my partner, Julia, like she, she, her crypto portfolio is more diverse um, than mine is. And she did like her own, you know, investigating. Um, she has some Ethereum, I think like she, you know, she dabbles here and there. I think for me, like, 
I mean, I have some CRO, like, uh, <laughs> because I am getting cash back on my card. Um, yeah. But I guess I just didn't think about it that much. I didn't have a lot of time to think about it um, during this last bit of my degree. So it was kind of like a just put it there and leave it there for the most part. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my money, which like, I mean, I'm, I guess I am in the journey that I'm going on. I'm trying to spend more time thinking about my money. Well, well you can screw up thinking about your money pretty easily. Like yeah. if you think about it too much, you can find yourself in a, like a situation where you're FOMOing or you're figuring out how to get too rich too quickly. And then you end up making a lot of mistakes. Or just stressing out. Quite yeah, honestly. Me, that's me. I mean, <laughs> That is you. Yeah, because I find that naturally the sort of um, strategy that you're using is stress-free and you're thinking about the future. So you're kind of set. And with and that's kind of similar to what I'm doing too. I do have a pulse on what's going on in the cryptocurrency industry in general, but I don't really like to look at how much my money has grown every other day or every other week. And because like Bitcoin is volatile. It's yeah. gone up and down by more than 10% of the past week. Yeah. And I've been through the experience of, oh my gosh, just made $500. Oh my gosh, just lost like $1,500. And it's not worth it to think about it. I don't like look that. at, like, I think in the initial few, excuse me, few months that from when I bought and like kind of kept buying like my kind of bigger, I guess, investment in it, I was doing that. Like I was looking at it, but it was also on a bull run. Is that what I... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was it was exciting to look at it. It was like, holy crap, look at what it's doing. Look at my money. Look at how my money is growing. Um, and then once it kind of plateaued off a little bit and yeah, did it's, you know, volatility thing. I didn't ever really stress except for the the most recent where it crashed like 50 percent or whatever it did. Um, 50% crash is pretty stressful. I, it, I wasn't even that stressed though. Like, yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not going to overestimate it. You were stressed and I understand why I don't have like my, all of my life savings in Bitcoin. Um, so I wasn't too stressed, but yeah, I guess I just sort of like, I understand the mission of it. And when I say like, I'm interested in the philosophy, I know like you're here for the philosophy and you're really invested and very like behind it. I'm just aware of it. And right. like, there are some aspects of it that I'm, I'm like, that makes sense, especially in our current global, um, climate, I guess. Um, yeah, but it's not, I don't know. I, 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 I trust that it's going to do more or less what like, its mission is to do. And that kind of, I think, I don't know, gives me a sense of safety, relative safety, whether or not that's like false safety, <laughs> false sense of safety. I don't know. Well, I remember you getting in touch with us when uh, you finished listening to the Michael Peterson and Bitcoin Beach episode, because you've spent, I would say, a significant amount of time compared to us um, in Central America. And when you listen to what he was doing with Bitcoin Beach and Azante and El Salvador, you, that really had an impact on you. And I would say that was one of the reasons why you were, it added to you being happy about putting your money in Bitcoin, if I remember correctly. So why did that 
why did that episode or interview have such an important impact on you? Um, I, yeah, I have spent a decent amount of time in Central America. My partner is from Central America. So I kind of, it's kind of like my second home. Um, and I, you know, love the people, love the culture, just kind of love everything about it. And I feel oddly protective of it, which is weird. And I think maybe that's why that episode really resonated with me was because he was talking about, yeah, what it's doing for the good of the people, I guess. Um, and me being kind of, you know, quite socially minded, I would say, um, that really appealed to me, um, making things more accessible for people who either don't have a lot of education around how to manage their money, don't have a lot of access to the services or the infrastructure that they need to manage their money. Um, all of which should sort of be like kind of a basic right at this point. I mean, maybe that's like, no, I literally just wrote an article today about how Bitcoin is, is human yeah, right or like access to sound money more specifically. I'm wondering if you experienced any of it firsthand when you were there. Experience what? Uh, experience the lack of access to financial institutions or just lack of access to being able oh. to pay someone. I experienced lack of access of being able to access <laughs> lack of <laughs> the difficulty with being able to access my money. And there was a lot of planning around making sure that I had money that I could use. And it was pretty much always in cash. And there were like, for instance, when I was staying in Guatemala in the town, the town in Guatemala, where I stayed for some months, um, there were just one or two ATMs in the like grocery store in the middle of the, the square that worked with my card. And so Essentially, I had to make sure I would get out like large sums of money because it cost a lot of money for me to withdraw money. So how much do you remember? Canadian dollars, I want to say it was like. It was between five and ten dollars that it cost me to take money out. Every time you use every the ATM. time I use the ATM, and the that ATM was itself tried to see like four fifty, and then I don't know how much the ATM. I can't remember how much the ATM down there charge me but yes my bank would also charge me for like international withdrawal fees or whatever they and then are an exchange rate probably oh yeah you wouldn't you have to um withdraw your money in uh, u.s dollars no local currency oh so what is it in guatemala it's quetzales oh, okay. yeah so it's like right now i think it's um 5.9 quetzales to a single dollar or to a canadian dollar right so that was the well, it was like 5.5 when I was down there. That was the exchange rate. But yeah, it, there was a lot of planning around making sure I had enough money. Um, but then also making sure I had somewhere safe to keep my money um, <laughs> because I would take out, Yeah, I don't know, probably the equivalent of like 150 or 200 Canadian dollars at a time. Right. Um, and then I would have to like shove it somewhere <laughs> in my clothes. Um, not that... I'm not trying to like insinuate that it's, it's, um, not safe, but, um, yeah, go well, it's back. It's a real concern though. Like, it's a concern. I think it's a concern, not just for people get mugged. <laughs> yeah. And it's a concern for locals as well. Like the, the access, but also the safety of their money. And there's not a lot of safety when you just need to use cash for everything. Um, yeah. So there, yeah, there was a lot of planning around it. And then if you would go to a town that was even more like remote, 
you would have to make sure that you like located the ATM like in that town um, and got money out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was often like maybe not close to where you were staying, not close to the central area, um, more off the beaten track. So yeah, it was. Did you have access to internet in this area? I was was just going to ask that question. (laughs) Yes, I had access to internet. Oh, okay. So access to what? Okay. Was it expensive access to internet? And did you have um, like an internet plan when you landed in Central America or was it your Canadian plan? Oh, you're asking me if I had like data. Yeah. Not inter- like Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, you, I... Not could... Wi-Fi necessarily though, but just, I mean, if you wanted to use Google Maps, for example, I'm not even sure no, if Google Maps so was usable. I, so I could have used it on my Canadian plan. Um, it would have been like $10 a day. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But so there were a couple instances in which I got a SIM card down there and would just prepay because there's yeah. like there's a lot of options for that to just prepay a certain amount and use the SIM card. Um, but generally, I was just on Wi-Fi. Well, what I because what I want to know is we know it it as a fact that more people in the world have access to the internet than they do to financial services and down in Central America, in your experience, did more people have access to a phone and then data on the phone yes. than access to, I guess, cash or ATMs or whatever way Basic money was services. earned? Yeah. yeah, 100%. If um, That was a kind of a weird, like, just cultural juxtaposition when I was down there um, to see, like, you go to really small rural villages that, like, don't have an ATM. They don't have, like, access to their money. But How they did all- they get money? They would go to the nearest town when they took like their um, like food to market and stuff like that um, in the nearest like larger town to sell stuff. That's that's also how they would get like cash right. selling their um, food. It was generally food. Um, yeah, but but everybody you go into those rural towns has a phone with data on it. Um, so how do they pay their phone bills? in cash wow because you can go to the um not always but a a lot of the time because you would the way that i experienced it which is just i think one type of phone plan was the sort of prepaying and you would just literally go to a corner store because all of these corner stores were equipped right um with like our version of telus and stuff like that and you would just give the the vendor cash and they would like top up your phone essentially um so yeah cash pretty much if you were to go back down there again, which but we're going to go to El Salvador. Salvador for the first time um, in November. But so we'll experience it firsthand. But can you en- envision whether or not a Bitcoin based economy, which is completely dependent and reliant on the Internet, would that work in the situations that you were in in Guatemala? I have doubts. I have some doubts and they're are a couple of reasons and it doesn't really have to do with like any downfalls that Bitcoin or crypto have. Um, it's more just that the, there's not a lot of financial literacy. There's not a lot of literacy period. Um, so the education part of it, like there, there would be barriers in terms of people understanding because if they don't even have access to traditional banking services, for instance, for me, I was saying like, because, you know, crypto exchanges are now pretty similar to online banking. But if these people don't even necessarily have experience with online banking, right. then like there is kind of a big 
learning curve, like a big hump to get over yeah, there is. to understand how that works. And then additionally, with it being so volatile and it's not, you know, just like their normal currency, which like may or may not be fairly, I mean, it's stable to them, right? Because that's all they are using. Um, I think that would be an extra level of understanding that would need to be like taught, I guess. Um, but the second one I think is infrastructure because I would say, I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but from my experience, I would say that most people, they're not going to like very large supermarkets, Walmart, like these types of places where it's like common to pay with a card and stuff like that. You're going to, there's a tiny corner store on pretty much every single corner and they generally sell like a lot of necessities that you might need. You go to the market to buy your food. Even in the market, you can buy toiletries, like all of this kind of stuff. So I think in terms of the society and where they are and how they conduct their business, it's again, just from my experience, mostly in Guatemala, it's, it wouldn't really mesh with like any type of more electronic system. Um, at the moment. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, I, I've got a couple of thoughts, but you, did you want to say something? Morgan? No, well, what that reminds me of is what I've read about skip technology in parts of mm. in countries in Africa where they, they never had telephone lines. They never had telephones that had a cable that ran through each household and they just skipped all of that altogether and went to cell phones right away. And even with cell phones, for example, again, in some parts of Africa, uh, you can pay with your minutes and you can pay directly via your phone, which at least we didn't have for a very long time until online banking became popular and e-transfer became popular because we all relied on these plastic cards that we would have to take everywhere uh, after we stopped relying too much on cash. So I, I can see there being a difficulty with the transition period. And this is just me um, saying my thoughts out loud because I have no idea how they're dealing with it. Even though we spoke to Mike Peterson, actually, in that episode, he said that teaching the locals, especially the elders, how to use their cell phones and how to transact on Bitcoin was a barrier that they themselves were facing. And this is before El Salvador decided to make Bitcoin their legal tender. So I'm that's what I was going to say is yeah. that it's going to be a generational change. Yeah, but that probably. doesn't exactly happen or help the people that are struggling now, right? Like people that are struggling now with uh, with their finances in whatever n number of ways that they are, uh, they're not helped by needing to go and, and be taught about Bitcoin and the Lightning Network and uh, financial literacy in general and how to connect to this online interface like that. It's like, no, 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 I need food today. <laughs> and, and so that doesn't help. But at the same time, like the, ge the generational change that is taking place right now is trending or it should be at least uh, if, if Bitcoin Beach is any kind of an example of what would happen elsewhere in the region um, is, is a model, then it, it is helping as well. Yeah. And I also am very curious to know how the societal change develops, because, for example, Mike said this and you also said this um, is when they needed to pay for things or when they needed to go buy things, someone would have to drive to the nearest town um, to either withdraw money to the at the nearest ATM or um, just to buy supplies. So if for uh, there was one particular example that Mike Peterson said is every 
everyone in this one area in uh, close to Elzante, they someone one person went to go pay their their electricity bill to the closest town which was like an hour hour and a half two hours yeah in san salvador yeah yeah away and uh what bitcoin is helping them do is that there's these businesses coming up where they say that okay you send us bitcoin and we pay we will pay your bill for you on your behalf which saves the one person or x number of people two hours of i'm not sure how if they were built bi-weekly or monthly it saves them four hours i guess of their day that they can take back to either trade or do something productive i wonder i mean yes your logic is completely sound i don't know if they would care getting their time back Mm -hmm. like it's kind of i think and again i don't want to speak like as if i know everything about Central America, because I don't. But um, again, from my experience, they're like a much more communal culture. So driving to the nearest town two hours away, they may be picking multiple people up and taking them with them. It might be a carpool mm. situation. They may be visiting people while they're when they get there. Like they may have many stops on the way, and it's completely worth their time. Um, they may just enjoy the drive. Like <laughs> they, I think we have to realize and remember that. We have a, like, our Western culture is incredibly, like, rat racy. (laughs) And any, like, moment that we can save for ourselves, like, we absolutely try to optimize, you know, any activity that we're doing so that we can gain back back that time, do it more efficiently. Faster, cheaper, better. And that's not a priority, I don't think, in a lot of Central American, like, societies it's it's not really a priority they're happy and i think we might all be a little bit more happy if we like ascribed a bit more to that type of life but yeah they're maybe they're carpooling maybe they're visiting a relative maybe they have a bunch of errands on the way like i think along with that even before you get to the barrier of like how to educate people i think getting them to think that it's actually important you know like getting them to buy into the fact that there's a problem that you're solving yeah. Um, because they don't really maybe see in terms of like, yeah, some excellent points, getting that time back or whatever. I think it's, I'm very passionate about like when you're working with working in or working with communities of which you are not a part um, to just like get really steeped in the culture and get really integrated so that you can meet people where they're at and like actually understand what their needs are. Um, Cause I think just even in, not in terms of Bitcoin, but like in terms of a lot of like NGOs and organizations that are meant to help underprivileged people, whether that's at home or in other countries, like there's criticism, for example, like volunteerism where there's like, you know, Habitat for Humanity type organizations and you're going down and you're building these homes. And, but that's not what the community actually needs. There's a lot of like criticism around how those organizations are run and what they're doing with their money. And like the fact that they're not engaged with the community that they're in to actually like better those people's lives. So because there isn't enough education going into teaching them how they can retain the skills, like the people in the community? No. No. No, because the organization is not meeting those people where they're at. They're not right. getting... They're sort of trying to jumpstart them they're, to... Well, they're, we're, we will place North American principles right. and problems that we assume people have based on 
you know, media, our exposure to pretty much media, because most people have not like been in those cultures. And yeah, we will assume we will extrapolate about like what their problems are. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, it's a big issue. It's a big issue with making policies. It's a big issue with, um, organizations trying to help out charity and stuff like that. And I think that the key to implementing something that is actually going to stick and last is to make sure that it does actually increase the quality of somebody's life by their standards, not by ours. Right. That, that's an awesome point. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Those are some very good points. We're going to have to, we're going to experience that firsthand. And I, I wonder, this has brought to question in a very unbiased way to, to look at Bitcoin being adopted as legal tender as as just a change, not a positive change, not a negative change, something that everyone's going to have to deal with. It's going to have positive and negative aspects. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. I have a question, folks. Should we close this window? Because yeah. there <laughs> <laughs> seems to be a lot of uh, ambulances and uh, other popo type sounds emitting vehicles. <laughs> Yeah, that window's a little bit uh, disobedient. <laughs> Lots of very good points, Kat. I, I had a question on the political scenario. Um, in I feel like we're saying Central American countries, but can we really generalize the politics in Central America as politics in one place? Um, probably not. Pro no, probably not. And I don't think I know enough to speak on it very much. I wish Julia was here. She would. She she knows. <laughs> Other than the fact that there's a lot of corruption in like very like various different ways. Can you and give us some examples? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know enough. <laughs> I wish I could speak to it, but I I can't. Um and most of their like their governments, the, like all of the cultures are very much and this is also kind of becoming a generational change, but very much governed by like principles of religion, generally Catholicism or, um, or evangel evangelical like Christianity. Um, so in terms of platforms politically, like those are some big, like it's very traditional. It's pretty conservative um, generally. Is that the majority religion? in parts i think catholicism and and um yeah do we know who colonized <laughs> parts of central america the spanish the Sp yeah. oh rest because yes Spanish. <laughs> right oh my god that's a good question but that's okay the, when you said the spanish does that mean areas in, in like europe european spain yes spain yeah spain. the spaniards okay. spain oh interesting all right they made it all the way to central america was that because yeah, Mexico and down everywhere that speaks Spanish? Oh, wow! Central and south, and then except Brazil, Port Portugal got Brazil. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Wow, and then so, wow. Okay, wow. I'm trying to envision. I'm <laughs> We're just getting a history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did grow up in India, so I didn't learn so much about who colonized what. Yeah, the, the All western you know is that part. British Britain colonized India. That's yeah. that was what you were talking. No, I, I. Well, we also learned a lot about World War One and Two and like general world stuff. Except, I guess not North Less about South the West, America. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very. I'm trying. I'm just trying to envision like how ships made it all the way around South America. 
or like, you know, whatever, not, not a history podcast or time for Ruga to learn about history, but wow. So then the Catholicism was brought into the, in just Central America. Yeah. And I think, I think that with the advent of like very, very accessible technology and the internet, like other perspectives are permeating the cultures and the societies. And that's kind of, I think that that contributes to the political unrest is because the people are upset about, you know, various policies. A lot of them like the things that I know about, um, like in terms of abortion and and stuff like that, which is like, it's a hard no. Um, but people are, are becoming a lot more influenced by the rest of the world and other perspectives. So I think that that will also be a generational change. Um, but when we think about that, like that's not going to be fast because no. the generation is probably the people like probably even a generation below us, probably Gen Z is, are the most affected. And even then, like they're brought up in incredibly different circumstances, different circumstances. Yeah. Like, and although they have access to the internet, that's not going to be the, their majority source of like influence, <laughs> like, right? What part of the internet, because the internet's oh, not gosh, just this yeah. like one place. It yeah, happens that's a good point. to be that's a good like point. <laughs> the biggest information repository yeah. that's ever existed. Yeah. So anyways, I feel like we're, no, I, well, I had something that I wanted to bring up because, um, hang on, we were just talking the about- The government's being corrupt. The government's being corrupt, and then we talk about language. Oh, yes, yeah, so I was going to say that I wonder how and if Bitcoin can be politicized, if at all, in, in Central America. Because, I think it's going to be politicized. Like, I think it is, too. I think it may be already has been. There is some cultist behavior in many cryptocurrencies based on what sort of cryptocurrency you want to see succeed. And I really wonder, and I'm very curious to see how that unfolds in parts of Central America. Do you see other like uh, parts of... If other parts of Central America, for example, also decided to adopt Bitcoin, will there be, or I guess, is there some sort of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Is there cohesion when traveling in those areas? And if they had the same currency, will will that really help in any way, according from your perspective? I think I have a limited perspective. I'll speak on just my limited perspective. I don't know, other than the issue of like people receiving funds from mm. family members in the U.S. and things like that. I otherwise, I don't know if there's a problem to be solved. Right. Um. And again, it's a. It's, I'm speaking from fairly limited limited experience. Um. But I wonder, especially if something like that is implemented widely, and then in Force, like the use is in force. I don't know if that that would be something that happened, but I think that well, it's actually kind of happening. Actually, one of the spe not speculations, but one of the clauses in the El Salvadoran um, Bitcoin bill is that the merchants must accept Bitcoin if they can. Mm -hmm. uh, so that if the merchant has an internet connection and someone walks up to them and and wants to pay them in Bitcoin, the merchant must must say yes i have the means to accept that so therefore i'll accept that but like i don't really agree with that because i don't know how positive that is right i i agree that's like i understand that kind of the underlying purpose of that is to just increase access and and create infrastructure but i just don't know 
Well, policy usually has uh, downstream unintended side effects. Uh, it almost seems like it's being colonized by Bitcoin. And <laughs> I know that colonization in itself perhaps has a sort of underlying negative meaning to it because of the way colonization has been used. Yes. In the past. But uh, I, I wonder how that's going to change. Though. Like, I, hmm, I, hmm. I don't think that the like even in El Salvador, where it's now um, one of their legal currencies. I don't think that the, again, from my limited experience, that the uptake is going to be fast or without Turbulence. resistance. Yeah. Turbulence. Yeah. Because I think that, well, again, limited knowledge. I don't see that there's a large problem that this is fixing. And I do see that there is like a few pretty significant barriers to entry. And so those two things combined make it just something that might not be very desirable for the masses to be using, I guess. Yeah, that's that's you've brought so many very different perspectives about lifestyle and community mm. in parts of Central America that has really gotten me to think about the think about Bitcoin's adoption by the country as more of an economic stronghold rather than i i don't even I, I dare say rather than but i guess to strengthen the economy on a world scale rather mm. than helping the common lay person yes yeah and i that's a really like succinct way to say it i wonder that too and i don't think i know enough about the political situation um but I wonder, I wonder about that. Well, the circular economy in El Zante was started irrespective of what the government was doing, because that, I don't remember exactly how many years ago that was, but long before the, the El Salvadorian government even considered making Bitcoin legal tender. So there was definitely um, there a community perspective from the way that El Zante and Bitcoin Beach was built. And I... I'm well, it's different now because looking forward to see whether or not that yeah. same sort of community aspect and same sort of philosophy that was meant to be implemented in the town of El Zante and Bitcoin Beach is now being spread across all of El Salvador. Right. Yeah. And, and it's different now because the government is saying that that they have to do it rather than El Zante, which was like, OK, we're going to do this. Um, and like, hey, we're going to do these workshops and everyone's invited to come and you don't have to come if you want. And if you think that you're interested in this, then like, let's do this together. And then it grew over a matter of two years. And then all of a sudden, like the government comes out and within the span of like three or four months, it's like, yeah, we're doing this. And now merchants have to take it. And Are they providing education? Yeah, I believe I so. But I don't not have sure a definitive answer on that. Yeah. And uh, like how accessible it is in terms of like people in rural areas and stuff like that. Like I that. Yeah, because all of those things are in terms of being culturally integrated and understanding the dynamics of the, the culture and the societies those things are all things that you really need to take into account when you're trying to implement such a large change like you know na national change yeah, they and really it's also fast-tracked didn't they <laughs> like that they was did fast. and i think it really like to Maruga's point like i think it had a lot more to do with putting them on the map economically, um, even if it doesn't, if it's not because they're prosperous, but it's because they're alternative and different and um, doing something, yeah, non-traditional to kind of maybe kickstart their economy a little bit. Right. 
which I guess if we, if we were to track how that this has impacted and affected all parts of El Salvador may have a positive impact because I mean we are going to El Salvador I don't think if <laughs> if it wasn't for Bitcoin Beach and if it wasn't for El Salvador making Bitcoin we probably wouldn't be going we wouldn't we wouldn't even thought of it right and I we've listened to so many podcasts like Peter McCormack for example has made several trips down there um and even Strike and their team and lots of people all over the so world Bitcoin tourism El Salvador has just become a hub for that exactly. but I wonder if that's a positive thing right exactly yeah do people do the El Salvadorans want a bunch of people coming in and and moving their bitcoin in there and like even buying citizenship because you can buy out the salvadoran citizenship with three bitcoin now and i imagine that a lot of those people are not going being culturally integrated and like benefiting those communities in different ways you know it may be kind of i mean when i was traveling i just saw a lot of white people going down taking advantage of the fact that everything was really cheap and like kind of not getting a they're not there for a cultural experience they're there for a vacation which is not an, a, a value negative thing an absolutely negative thing by any means but yeah i wonder if the focus is now going to be more on bitcoiners whether they be locals or tourists um rather than focusing on things like general education because you know there's like there's <laughs> huge amounts of lack of lack of education just you know in rural communities for children for adults like health education sexual health education like so i just wonder is this going to really shift priorities in a positive way and will there because of how much management it's going to require to integrate that change the change of of legal tender are other things going to be put on the back burner that might actually you know be more important for for that for um, those societies. One positive way that this could impact all of the challenges and um, I guess issues that have not been resolved or haven't been given the priority could be that if there are if there is a migration of people all around the world who want to now settle down in El Salvador um thinking from a point of view of them wanting to make their lives better and their children's lives better if they do end up settling there i, I can see how us as, as a side effect or as a consequence of people migrating to el salvador there are there is better education and there is better healthcare or just education on health and um it'll be a cultural integration a culture yes for sure it's, you're, you're talking about like simply the virtue of uh like people coming from more educated areas of the world going into a less educated, like they're going to bring their life experiences, but that comes with a cultural integration, right? That, that yeah. comes with them sort of imposing the values of, of, uh, yeah. of where they came from onto yeah. people who might not necessarily, like, even if their lives are like some, by some metrics, some like, like just say, um, like quality of life standards. Um, however, however one wants to measure that, like we might be able to say that because of Bitcoin, like that's been raised. Um, but it still doesn't address like the the imposition of of this thing that, that that's been brought upon these people that might not have wanted to have brought upon them. There's certainly going to be change, and <laughs> I, I definitely like, going to be change. Some of it will be positive. Some of it will not necessarily be in the best interests of people that are already there. And then there's so many gray areas where we don't even know what the ripple effect will be in the future. One thing is for sure is there's going to be change and. That's why I encourage you guys yeah. to like 
get a little Spanish before you go. Like, See? try. Well, I mean, <laughs> or have access yeah. to someone who can translate. Like, really get in there, talk to locals, talk to people who live outside of the town in rural totally. areas. Like, just make sure that you get like a rounded perspective mm. on uh, on what's going on. And true, because then, I mean, you guys as Bitcoin entrepreneurs, you can affect change in ways that is meaningful in terms of you know you learn what the barriers for these people are by talking to them directly yeah that's right and you may be able because if you speak with somebody who has set stuff up we go to bitcoin beach we we talk to some german guy uh-huh that's like also enthusiastic that's gonna be fun it's gonna be a good conversation yeah but it's not gonna tell us about the boots on the ground experience yeah yeah and that's for like that's for any any population again at home or away that you're working with that like you don't have a shared kind of life experience with them. It's, I think when you're, yeah, working to try and affect change in their lives, it's like really important to connect with them in, in their lives. I do have some plans in mind to, uh, to help me learn my, my Spanish and somehow, somehow translate some of my French knowledge and vocabulary <laughs> into some Spanish uh, structure forming and vocabulary. But, We'll see. I definitely do respect your point of view and some of the thoughts that you brought to the the culture aspect and the um, integration of ourselves with the community already present there and making sure that we're actually useful instead of being a nuisance and being there just because, yay, Bitcoin. Yeah, and like, because you guys are obviously going to create a lot of content about your trip and stuff and like just making sure that the message that you're putting out about what's mm -hmm. going on down there is like accurate. Yeah. What's yeah. actually yeah. going on. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Okay. So I want to bring this conversation to politics still, but now <laughs> as it relates to Bitcoin, because earlier today you were saying that, that Bitcoin, Hmm. I'm not sure what my thoughts are on Bitcoin because of the political issue surrounding it. Right. Cause there's an election going on in Canada right now. So I'm also curious to, to understand how this is played into to that. Yeah. Um, and I told you guys, I don't know if I have a lot of language for this, but I'm going to try and express it the best way I know how. We went on a trip and we had a few political debates um, when we went on this trip. And I wonder, I'm going to pose a question to you guys. Okay. <laughs> um, what do you think that the political implications of Bitcoin are um, in terms of the spectrum? And what do you think? Which, sorry, which spectrum? The political spectrum. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. And what do you think your heavy involvement in Bitcoin may imply about your politics? Do you want to go first or Very go good first? question. I'm going to have to think about that, Keegan, okay. if you have an answer. Go cool. First. So I think first off, it's, it's, it's in line with property rights. So it has a total respect for the property of the individual. So it's very individualistic. Um, in some sense and very collectivist in another sense. Um, it's collectivist in the sense that obviously Bitcoin won't work unless you have a collective using it. It's individualistic in the sense that it won't, well, <laughs> in the sense that it protects the property rights of the individual. But what that means is you, uh, like if everyone has their wealth in Bitcoin and uh, the government wants to tax, tax the rich, for example, you can't tax the rich. Uh, you can't impose a, like a, a big tax that people disagree with, even if even if people disagree with it, because people can just hold on to their money. And there's no way to, to just take that money out of their bank account and redistribute it. Um, so 
Bitcoin's like it's I I've thought a lot about this and it's actually in the middle in in a lot of ways which is uncomfortable for a lot of people because What do you mean by in the middle? Uh, on the spectrum, on the political spectrum oh. in terms of being left or right. Yeah, cuz I like I I know that a lot of people like you got to be left on this issue or you got to be right on this issue. <laughs> it's almost like extremely right and extremely left at the same time. Which like I kind of balances it out. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's it's weird. It is a weird one, right? Because it it does have those uh, those polarities built just straight directly into it. Can you speak a little bit about how it kind of brings with it, or like maybe part of the philosophy is like a distrust of banks, government, stuff like that. Yeah, and I'll give you a different perspective on that, actually. Rather right. than a distrust in those institutions, it, it, it's an it is an acknowledgement that those some of those institutions cannot do their job despite their intent and their best effort. Um, so the specifically the institution that I'm referring to is the central bank, and despite their intent to balance the economy and do a good job at it, and you know you can hire twelve economists that each have their PhD in economics, but despite all of that knowledge, all of those smarts, um, for whatever reason, we can't figure out how to have a planned economy. That, that that's. So it's not distrust of them necessarily. It's, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, there are shortcomings. There are certain powers that I don't think that should be in the hands of human beings. And managing the monetary supply is one of those powers. I'd rather, interesting. much rather that power be in the hands of the free market. Um, and like that is a replica of the way that things used to be with respect to gold. Um, like there is no central bank that could print gold. Gold had to be mined by companies who uh, who had to like pull it out of the ground through some sort of work effort, and that's that's a process that I agree with with respect to how money gets brought brought into it existence. What do you think the implications of that are on providing social services? So, like printing money for the the cause of. Uh, but I mean, of, how in a Bitcoin economy, mm -hmm. let's say for example, how would you reconcile? Not being able to take wealth and redistribute it into, yeah, social services or things that benefit, like, you know, yeah. society, the greater good. There's, I think there's a, like a 40 or 50 year period where there's a great unknown. Um, but in, in the limit case where Bitcoin is is completely widely adopted and we're on a Bitcoin standard and everyone's core money is Bitcoin. Um, in that scenario, people don't get poorer from 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 the central bank printing money to to redistribute. But that's not the only way that people get poor. Get, get poor. Or right? There's poor. lots of ways that people get poorer. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a, it's a thing that I actually struggle with because that 50 year unknown period is is I think like the the wild card here. Uh, I think that you can have your cake and eat it too in the sense that. We can be on a Bitcoin standard and have Bitcoin be at the cent central uh, at the center of our economy, and we can also have government have fiat currencies. So governments would back their uh, their money with um, with gold, and the uh, sorry Bitcoin digital gold. And the function of that is so that the people can keep them in check. Um, that was the 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 function of. Uh, of gold hundreds of years ago, but now governments, sorry, central banks do not have that check in place. It, they, they can print money infinitely. Um, and 
so there is no society if you print money infinitely. So it doesn't really matter if they're printing money for good or not, because the social fabric itself will crumble. If, I, yeah, I don't know if you can say that there is no society if they can print money infinitely. And I actually do have, um, I thought of a critique about comparing Bitcoin to gold all the time, just while you were answering that. With respect to the question that you asked, though, I'll tell you one thing. With respect to understanding the political landscape, I'm not very educated. I'm just now or very recently starting to or have started to um, read up the definitions of things like libertarianism, uh, liberal parties and um, conservatism or conservative parties and, and like I'm the isms and the ites and the <laughs> yeah and all of the different categories because honestly i used to confuse what was left and what was right and i associated with it associated it with my preconceived definition of what i thought was left and what i thought was right but all of that was wrong and i feel a social responsibility to be more aware of who is vying for what what they support and, and why and why <laughs> and because i am a very small part obviously but a very integral part because i'm part of this society in this country um i, I do need to understand and um and participate in a responsible way so i don't have an answer to how bitcoin is or where it is in the political landscape because i myself don't know the political <laughs> landscape but with respect to your answer keegan it's very radical and what I, is which part? All of it. <laughs> I don't know. I think you you gave me a little bit more of a balanced answer than I expected. Mm. Um, so interesting. <laughs> but I have a follow up question. Yeah. Which is you being very immersed in the Bitcoin landscape. Is there not a lot of kind of right wing radicalization that happens around Bitcoin due to Bitcoin and how do you feel about that and what's that like there's there's totally a toxic aspect to to uh bitcoiners um does Bitcoin radicalization necessarily mean toxicity though uh yeah i don't know not so always much. but like can <laughs> i like so are you asking is there or or why is there both well is there in your experience obviously being like incredibly immersed and integrated in it what is your experience of that radicalization? Yeah. Where do you, like, what are your opinions on it? I love this question. Yeah. Uh, yes, I would say that there is a radicalization of of sorts. And like, so like, rah, 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 we've got the right answer to fix the world and fix the economy. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's the radicalization without the acknowledgement that there is this 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 transition period that's going to take place. And obviously, the people who have Bitcoin, if we're all sort of in agreement that in the limit case, Bitcoin wins and like it becomes the, the global standard, the people that who have gotten into it in the last 12 years are in a ridiculously better position than everyone else, period. And that's uh, I feel really negatively about the um, bad, bad people have Bitcoin. Bad people own Bitcoin right now. Yeah. And they're going to get richer. Bad people or people with bad intentions? People with bad intentions and bad, look, bad people. People who traffic humans. People who, uh, I don't know, people who just... Anyway, really, we don't have to get into the semantics <laughs> of it. But yeah, I get, I get your point. Yes. Yeah. And I don't feel great about that. Um, no. And about the fact that they're just like inevitably going to get richer. Yeah. Just based on the structure and activity of Bitcoin. Right. Exactly. Like that's... Well... Not to the structure of, of Bitcoin, but basically due to, um, well, it, the, the price appreciation that I believe is going to occur in Bitcoin over yeah. the course of the next 50 years. 
Um, so yeah, I think there is a radicalization. And if I was to point it out directly, I would say there's like rah, 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 our, our opinion is the right opinion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and despite whether or not you have a good reason for why you're right, um, I think that we could tone down <laughs> the, uh, like the toxicity in which it's relayed and have a little bit more of a, like, we need to put our thinking caps on to mm-hmm. make sure that we don't have uh, a 1% of the population that has 99% of the Bitcoin in 50 years. My impression of the Bitcoin landscape is that in terms of people wanting, yeah, the limit case to um, occur and for there to be a Bitcoin standard, like a lot of the development of those theories and those strategies and those policies is happening kind of in a Bitcoin silo. And like you say, like we have the answer, we're not necessarily integrating the structure of, you know, the economy that we have now. Um, And like, yeah, those 50 years, like what does that transition look like? How can it be seamless? How can we make sure that people don't get left behind and that it's not just like another capitalism? I don't want to see people get left behind. I, I I think the more people holding it, the better, but it actually has to be widely distributed to work. I think if it's not widely distributed, I think it will it will actually still have a net positive. I I, I will like say that and, I, and I'll defend that, but I, I don't think it'll work as well. Obviously, how would it get widely distributed? Uh, how would it get widely distributed? Through labor. Um, so I, I think like for any of this to work, uh, people need to get start getting paid in, in Bitcoin mm-hmm. um, or saving in Bitcoin. One of those two things. If they start to do one of those two things, then they're immediately like, I mean, immediately the moment it hits their Bitcoin wallet and they're taking care of it responsibly, um, it'll benefit them immensely. In the future, though, not in the future, right away. Correct. Yeah. And in terms of where this falls with. Like being kind of untouchable by government and like the redistribution process like i'm you know fairly socially minded so for me like having adequate comprehensive social services for people who need them i think is a very important function of the government although as you said like there's always shortcomings is there a way that bitcoin could address that you know, in yeah. a Bitcoin standard economy. I don't I don't think I have an answer for you for that one. No. I I don't know if Bitcoin was ever set up to solve that problem. There's there's problems that it doesn't solve. So well would it at least like match what's going on now? Like that's what I mean. Yeah, I don't think it would make it any worse. Okay. Yeah. I, I I in fact yeah I would I would sit here and defend that. Like I, I don't think it would it would exacerbate social issues. Um like I don't personally think like the government putting money into social programs solves them in any any way shape or form like i kind of i would like try to divert that conversation in another way and and, like call that more of a systemic issue with uh not like money priorities yeah exactly yeah right i think you're wrong well that's okay i can be wrong sometimes (laughs) (laughs) i i know i know so i guess that came out in a wrong way but that's a i guess that's a very interesting way to put things keegan because you're saying that you don't think necessarily the the government or money being put into a particular thing will solve it or at least trend it towards a, a better direction you don't believe that to be true maybe not government 
I can, I can kind of see, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly. Money like siphoned through a government that doesn't necessarily have boots on the ground, like kind of just that's exactly actually what back, I'm talking about. Yeah. Looping it back to what we're talking about, because I worked briefly um, in a research position working with a um, community based um, harm reduction organization, it was a, a safe supply, um, like drug using supplies program, um, needle exchange program, essentially in, in Halifax. And one big thing that we did for them as a research network was, um, do a program evaluation for them. And the reason that we did that was because they needed to demonstrate how effective their programming was to vie for more funding from the government, because the government does have, um, the government has a lot of money that they funnel into, um, I'm sorry. This has been a long conversation. <laughs> the government <laughs> has a lot of money that they funnel into um, what they think um, recovery for people who use drugs is essentially, and a lot of those principles are not based in harm reduction. They're based in recovery, which is like often centered around abstinence and stuff like that. And there's a lot of evidence to say that it's not the most effective way to support people who use drugs, and they're like the community-based organization that we were helping out, they got much, much less funding from the government than these government programs that helped many less people in a much less effective way. So I kind of understand what Keegan's saying in that, yeah, you can't, like, the economy is not always going to put, or like the economic structure, structure is not always going to put the government's priorities in the right place in terms of yeah social services and and making sure that money is allocated where it needs to go so just before we're good you you tell me why exactly i'm wrong i just want to like uh double down on what what kat was saying uh with respect to boots on the ground and and like take this back to what i was saying about just be uh, okay if we can print money <laughs> which we can apparently like why why a why do we pay taxes and b uh why haven't we printed money to give to schools for example why haven't we printed like when you actually when if, let's look at what the government or sorry the central bank and the government is actually doing with the printed money we're going to war and we're padding the pockets of rich people and we're bailing out banks and we're bailing out corporations, the corporations. that's what the money that has been printed has largely been going to do it's not been given to hospitals and except, schools except for and the last programs. year except for the last year right like except for the last two years where at least if right. we're talking about canada right, right, right. they have printed money but to COVID, the economy covid not so we're talking pre-covid necessarily well, like, proportionately I, I still think my argument holds up because like what did we get we got two thousand dollars a month or, or whatever per citizen that needs it and then we still bailed out the banks and how much money did we print a trillion like with a big t Right. And we can total that up. And 99% of the money went went to not giving $2,000 stimulus checks to individuals. It went to all of these other things. And or helping businesses, like small businesses and stuff like that. Right. But we've got more small business closures than we ever have been before. So if I was to try and give you an answer, I, like this is a faith-based answer. I want people to be more altruistic with their money. And I would hope 
that in a world where the government doesn't have an infinite pocketbook to dole out or decide uh, that like this needle exchange program, I need to apply for funding. Well, can they go to members of the community that have money and ask? And I would hope that the people would say, yes, I, I have that extra bit. But I mean, I, why would Bitcoin make a difference? I don't think it would. So I don't necessarily they probably <laughs> have done that and it probably hasn't worked. So anyways, it's. They're all obviously incredibly hypothetical questions, but right. I'm you you have provided very thought provoking answers. Oh well, that's good. Yeah, and much <laughs> more balanced answers again than I <laughs> than I expected. So I'm glad of that. That's some food for thought for me because I have uh, like one thing I'll just say on that note is we're talking about the government and the economy, which is different for different people in different right. parts of the world, and even though that some of what you're saying might be applicable in Canada or even some parts of Canada instead of saying Canada in general. Mm. I, I certainly think that based on the part of the world or a certain part of that part of the world you're talking about, that answer will change based totally. on the context that that particular community is experiencing. So context-based answer, I see what you're saying. And I think for a more general answer, I don't think there is one. Because it, it is very much context-based. <laughs> it's context-based, yeah, 100%. Yeah. As, you know, government priorities are context-based throughout the world as well, so. Right on. So, Kat, last question. Mm -hmm. In your lifetime, do you see yourself uh, going full crypto? <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, in the foreseeable future, I'm not making huge amounts of money. So, like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, and you don't see yourself getting grants in, in Bitcoin or in crypto, any kind of... Crypto. I don't imagine that, that they will be provided in crypto, but um, I'm interested in like things like Keegan suggested, like possibilities for change for as much social good as we can do. Um, and so if me adopting a, a full, fully crypto lifestyle, like we'll get me closer to that or yeah if me educating people around crypto um gets our society closer to that then yes wonderful that is a very unique answer thank you for that do you have any last trailing questions for us no i think this is a great conversation <laughs> i mean it definitely went far away from financial literacy journeys but i think it's I think that all of it counts, though, in one one way or another, because we started with talking about your reasons for learning about Bitcoin in the first place. Mm. And we went into talking about how you knowing about financial literacy and you learning about Bitcoin has impacted um, some of the experiences that you've had traveling in Central America. And you had some very important thoughts to share with us um, and and with our audience as well, based on based on your actual like you spending time boots on the ground so to speak learning the language spending time with the community and actually integrating with them rather than mm -hmm. being like hey i'm a, I'm a tourist i'm vacationing yeah here. so those are some very very well thought out well i guess not well thought out thoughts really they're, yeah they're, they're good like they're yeah. good questions for anything i guess and like you said like every it 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 applies everywhere like the adoption of bitcoin is going to look different yes. mm -hmm. it's going to be context dependent right mm -hmm. probably and yeah if you can you as a 
all of you, like the proverbial <laughs> you and like you guys can figure out the best, the best use for like the best good. And obviously there's lots of perspectives to integrate into that, then yeah, I'm all for it. Cool. Well, if, if anyone wants to reach out to you and ask you questions about your journey or even psychology for that matter, because you're like, hey, I want to know about where you're going to be. So maybe we can study together, whatever. Where can they find you? I'm on Twitter newly. <laughs> I saw that. You can't really find me anywhere. Um, but I'm on Twitter. What's my Twitter handle, Keegan? I don't know what my Twitter handle is. I think it's K Dikaos, D I K A I O S. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's cool. it. Ask me some questions. Yeah. I'm interested. I'm not a wealth of knowledge, but. Yeah, you, I, are. you are a wealth of knowledge from your own perspective because no one has a story that you have, no one has a journey that no, you I have. No, I suppose. But I, I do like, I am good at being critical. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I like to like engage in those types Ask of dialogues right with questions. people that maybe do have like um, more of a wealth of knowledge about different topics. Right on. Yeah. Well, we will link that in the show description so you can tweet at her directly. <laughs> and Kat, Thanks, guys. thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I love it. It's so fun. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening in and stay tuned.